Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The time in Kiev is 3.40 a.m., on Friday, October 14th, and the town of Bilohorvika, a small mining village in the Lahansk Oblast, is back in Ukrainian hands. to another episode of Reconsider, where we don't do the thinking for you, part of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm Eric, your host, recording once again, and hopefully for the last time, from South America, where I don't have my podcast mic. So we've got a really cool episode for you this time. It's the probably the best good news episode we've had in a while. Actually, sorry, the last one was pretty good news, but things have slowed down a little bit. Although a lot has happened since we last talked, last time we spoke together, the Ukrainians had pushed out of Kharkiv in what's called the Blitzkrieg, jokingly, but the awesome offensive in the Northeast that broke Russian troops, caused them to flee east of the Oskil River. Since then, the Ukrainians have crossed the Oskil everywhere, and they're currently putting intense pressure on the critical town of Svatove. Svatove is the town through which runs both the major highway and the major railway by which the Russians supply Lysychansk and Severodonetsk. When the Ukrainians take this, Lysychansk and Severodonetsk are nearly cut off. Not completely, of course. They can still get reinforced from the east and the south, but that's the main supply line from Russia, and it means that Lysychansk and Severodonetsk are in a lot of trouble. So that's what's happening in the northeast. Incredible news, incredible work, and that offensive is still ongoing by the Ukrainians. In the south near Kurasan, a similar breakthrough happened. It didn't gain quite as much territory, but it's also a very big deal. Along the east bank of the Dnieper River, you have a bunch of Russians that are on, as I say, the wrong side of the Dnieper, trying to defend. Coming in from Krivyi the Ukrainians ended up breaking through Russian front lines and racing down to take a number of key towns. In particular, what they were able to do was this sort of peeling maneuver, kind of like peeling off tape or peeling off a band-aid, where they were peeling the Russians along the Dnipro, primarily because these guys had lost their flanks that were covering them. And so they were able to get down all the way towards some small village that we won't talk about again, so I won't have you learn it. But they were able to make significant progress down towards the much more critical town of Kozatsky, and Kozatsky is one of the two crossings across the Dnipro. Kozatsky is one, Kursan is the other. If the Ukrainians are able to go down and take Kozatsky, it's a very good sign. That offensive has slowed down as well, and the Ukrainians are back to their positional warfare. And that kind of positional warfare and patience is going to be a big part of our conversation today 
where we talk about what I call asymmetric momentum. Today's episode covers this asymmetric momentum issue. And what do I mean by asymmetric momentum? There is this asymmetry from victory, this asymmetry from progress and results that we're seeing with the Russians versus the Ukrainians. And we're going to answer why that is today. The asymmetry we're seeing is that Russian victories on the battlefield seem to slow the Russians down and sap them of more strength, make it harder to win the next fight. Ukrainian victories on the battlefield, however, seem to do the opposite. Ukrainian victories seem to increase their ability to win. They seem to be, so essentially the Ukrainians seem to be building momentum on their offensives, and the Russians seem to be losing momentum on their offensives. And we're going to explore why that is. This is not a necessarily inevitable trend. It is not necessarily irreversible, but it does seem quite persistent. And therefore, it does seem that it's going to be the kind of fundamental lever by which the Ukrainians win this war. Because the Russians at this point can't really launch offensive. They're trying an offensive in Bakhmut still. For weeks, they've been trying to take that one town and it unlocks their ability to potentially progress more in Donetsk. They still haven't been able to break out of Donetsk City, which they've held since 2014 and the beginning of the war. They're on the retreat in the Northeast in Luhansk. They're on the retreat in South and Kherson. And there are at least rumors that the Ukrainians are building up for a counterattack in the southern middle of the country. You've probably heard of it now, Zaporizhia Oblast, where Mariupol and Melitopol are. Melitopol is probably the most, the single most important town, besides maybe Kherson, that the Ukrainians can take back in this war. Melitopol is a huge depot by which Russians are able to move material from Crimea. Uh, it is possible the Ukrainians are actually on offensive on two fronts and maybe working on a third. The Russians are not able to conduct an offensive right now. It is still the case that the Russians, at least as far as we can tell, out have more firepower than the Ukrainians. But the Russians are largely offensive ineffective. So let's talk about why that is. I've actually six reasons, but I want to talk about one of the things that's happened recently that kind of highlights all this. Some number of episodes ago, some months ago, we pointed out that the Ukrainians had run out of their Soviet ammunition for artillery. And so their artillery guns started going quiet. They were only able to use NATO artillery and were entirely dependent on NATO ammunition. So they're being a little bit conservative. And it just meant that those artillery tubes, those individual guns that they had of Soviet design, were not firing. Now, it turns out using a small number of HIMARSes is way better than using hundreds of old Soviet tubes, but it's still the case that using old Soviet tubes allows you to suppress the enemy, make it harder for them to move at will, harder for them to move material, right? It's like mortars, right? It's really about pinning them down when it's inaccurate, but it was still useful. And so you had all this material sitting around these Soviet tube artillery sitting around doing nothing. Well, it turns out in all these offensives where the Ukrainians have swept through quickly, in particular in Kharkiv and outside of Kherson, the Russians have left behind so much stuff that the Ukrainians have a whole bunch of Soviet-style artillery rounds again. And so they have ammunition for their artillery, and they're able to bring that artillery back to bear. It's not just that they're, we know that the Ukrainians are getting tanks and artillery and other stuff from the Russians that are being left behind in these retreats but they also have gotten ammunition that allows them to use weapons that, you know, that the Ukrainians have had this whole time, but they had to mothball. 
And this is the kind of stuff where we see this asymmetric momentum in play, at play. In particular, the kind of phenomenon we're seeing is that when the Ukrainians were on defense, the Russians were really on offense. When the Ukrainians were on defense, they made the Russians really fight and grind for every inch of territory. They made them bleed for every inch of territory. And when it was time to retreat, the Ukrainians retreated in due course to find a better position by which to, they would do these tactical retreats to go back and create better defensive positions to make it hard for the Russians to go on offensive. This is sane warfare, right? This is what any good leader should do, is when you have to retreat, you retreat, and you go to a place where if the enemy wants to advance further, you make them bleed for it. What that means is that the Russians in offensives would have a tactical disadvantage. They would be the ones who would, you know, if they wanted to go take this town or this bridge or whatever, it was under Ukrainian gunfire. The Ukrainians had an advantage. They would kill more Russians than Russians would kill Ukrainians. And so that wears Russia down. The Ukrainians, on the other hand, tend to be able to go on offensives without the Russians being clever or wise enough to tactically retreat and put the Ukrainians in another bad position. When the Ukrainians go on offensives, once they break through, Russian lines tend to break. The Russians retreat in a disorganized way. They have to go reform their lines way further back and they leave behind a lot of material that the Ukrainians are able to pick up. It may also be the case that because of these scattered retreats and routes, a lot more Russians are eliminated. If you retreat wisely, you lose a small number of people. If you retreat in a panic, the enemy, in this case the Ukrainians, can either chew you to pieces using all sorts of weapons, or they can capture a lot of your people because a disorganized retreat means that different groups are retreating at different times, groups will get surrounded, your units will get surrounded, they'll be cut off, they'll be either destroyed or captured. This means that these Ukrainian victories tend to take out more Russians than Ukrainians, both in terms of people and material, and Russian victories tend to take out more Russians than Ukrainians. This is the essence of this asymmetric momentum, is that Russian victories cost the Russians more than the Ukrainians, and Ukrainian victories cost the Russians more than Ukrainians. So let's talk about why this is the case. So back in Ukraine, maybe it was episode seven or eight. Ah yes, episode eight, bold strategies and high stakes, Right. If you recall, the Ukrainians, what they did was they knew that the Russians desperately politically needed to take Severodonetsk and Lysychansk. And so they lured the Russians in and they knew the Russians wouldn't give up. They knew the Russians would just keep throwing people at it. They knew that the Russians not only needed to take it, but that they were in a political rush. They felt like they needed to show progress quickly. And therefore, the Ukrainians just chewed the Russians to pieces as the Russians tried to rush to take Severodonetsk and Lysychansk, rather than Russians being patient and using positional warfare to try to put the Ukrainians in a bad position to be able to hold it. They ran right into the city and they lost possibly 10 or 15,000 people in just that attack and, and just poured, you know, of course, tons, you know, uh, exhausted their troops because Forces are not just about counting men or even technology, right? It's the cohesion, you know, the experience, the cohesion of these troops. Losing junior officers is terrible for troops to be combat effective in the future. Losing veterans, you know, if you're putting the tip of the spear into Severodonetsk and it's getting blunted, it becomes much harder for you to wage warfare in the future. So this is an example of where the Russians, so this is one of our big principles. 
the Russians are hampered by, the Russians have political constraints. Um, those constraints are that, again, the Russians feel like they have to demonstrate progress in two ways. One of them is that when they were on offensive, they felt like they needed to demonstrate that they could go on offensive quickly and take territory quickly because they didn't want to say that the war wasn't going well. And so again, this came to a head in particular in Severodonet, but it was also the Ukrainian strategy once the second phase of the war began, the Donbass war, once the second phase of the war began, the Ukrainian strategy was to make the Russians bleed for every inch, knowing that the Russians had made it politically clear that their objective was to take Luhansk and Donetsk, and that every day they didn't take it or make progress towards taking it, they looked bad. So this political constraint to show progress, having these very, very fixed, very territorial goals, meant that politics was determining how the Russians would fight. They were not fighting to defeat the Ukrainian army. They were fighting to be able to show that they took territory on a map. And that meant that the Ukrainians could manipulate them tactically to be able to defeat their army. This is also the case. The second point is they have a no retreat doctrine. Again, because of politics. You know, Stalin had a no retreat doctrine, and I don't know the politics of the Soviet Union at the time, how much that was actually tactically or strategically sound versus not. But in Ukraine, it is not sound. Why? Because what the Russians need to do if they want to win is defeat the Ukrainian army, not hold all territory. Right? Tactical retreats are smart. You can even lure enemies and make very good decisions with tactical retreats. But tactical retreats look bad to the Russians. And therefore, the high brass does not allow it. And therefore, the middle commanders who keep getting sacked left and right. And by the way, remember that people are falling out of windows here. Right? And by falling out of windows, I mean literally falling out of windows, dying under mysterious circumstances when they displease the Kremlin. And so you have these guys, these middle commanders, who are being told, don't lose an inch or else. And they're like, great, we're not going to lose an inch. And so when people are, you know, when they get calls up from the radio, from their frontline officers saying, we are taking hell here. We're just getting pounded. We need to retreat. We need support. We need to retreat. The Russians say, no, don't. And so what this means is that the Russian forces have to hold and hold and hold until they break. And once they break, they rout because they're broken and they don't have the option to do a disciplined retreat much of the time. Now, this isn't true everywhere. Wagner really runs its own show. The LNR and DNR, the Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republics, to some extent run their own shows. The Chechnyans kind of run their own show. Some of these more advanced units run their own show. But the basic Russian units are, you know, they just follow this very rigid chain of command. And so when they say, hey, we want to retreat, they say you can't until people start to break. And what happens is when people start to break and you don't have a disciplined retreat, what happens is your unit and the unit to your left just disappeared. It's just gone. Right? You're like, hey, where are you guys? They're gone. And then you see some Ukrainians pouring in and you go, oh, snap, we're going to get flanked and surrounded. We need to run too. And then a rout begins. And that rout is not only why you have both in Kursan and Kark, the Russians fleeing en masse and the Ukrainians being able to launch these massive offensives that are incredibly effective, but also why they leave behind material because they can't retreat in an ordered way. So these guys literally start just running for their lives. That's the second reason 
that the Ukrainians can gain momentum on these victories because these routes, again, we mentioned it before, not only mean the territory gained for Ukrainians doesn't kill a lot of them, but it does mean a lot of captured or killed Russian troops during the route because the route is where most of your troops are going to die. And it's also how the Russians lose most of the material. And the capture, the Ukrainians even captured T-90s, the most advanced Russian tanks, T-90Ms even. And they're turning those on the Russians now. And so that's the third reason why we have asymmetric momentum, is that the discipline and doctrine among the Russian front lines is poor. It's just poor. And this is probably due to a Soviet top-down style military system, where as a conscript, just a Russian soldier, unless you're elite, you just do what you're told. You aren't very well trained. You don't have a sense of esprit de corps the way that NATO-style militaries do. You're not proud of your service. You're not proud even of your equipment. You know, American troops are taught to be proud of their equipment. And they're all taught through extensive training, which they all get that these Soviet-style troops don't get. They're all trained extensively. And part of that training is don't allow your stuff to fall into enemy hands. If you can't take it with you, blow it up. If you remember Black Hawk Down, if anyone saw that, the Black Hawk crashed. And what did they do before they left, even though they were under threat? They blew it up. They put charges inside of it and blew it up to make sure that the enemy could not capture it and either use it or at least get intel on it. Russian troops largely don't because they lack esprit de corps, they lack discipline, and they lack that pride of service that Western troops have. And so that is a separate factor from the routes in allowing Ukrainians to capture massive amounts of ammunition and heavy armaments that they're now turning on the Russians. So the Russians are losing, with each victory, the Russians lose some of their material advantage, again, because they're grinding out these victories because they're highly politicized and the Ukrainians know exactly where they're going to go and there's no flexibility. And they're losing a lot of uh, even more stuff in defeat and retreat because they leave it behind. They leave behind these ammo caches and weapons caches. And that brings us to the next point about ammo caches. We've talked for at least two episodes now, I think, about, yeah, in Ohi Mars, the lightning counteroffensive, about the effectiveness of United States targeting intelligence and the high Mars, like the highly accurate high Mars GPS targeted rocket system that the Ukrainians can just at will blow stuff up as long as they can find it. They can blow up bridges, they can blow up ammo depots, they can blow up train depots. So it makes it very hard for the Russians to run their very top-down, very centralized style of warfare. The Russians have to re Russian supply lines become very fragile or become very spread out, very slow, very inefficient because the Ukrainians are able to blow up all their stuff. So the reason the Ukrainians can do this and the Russians can't is a fewfold. One of them is it turns out the Russians just aren't competent at being a military. Right? It just turns out they are a paper tagger. Corruption has been rampant for so long. The training has been weak and mostly focused on impressing Putin and the top brass and all these cronies. It's really quite pathetic. And it's the problem with dictatorship. I think we talked about the dictator trap a little bit. So, so yes, the Russian military is pathetic. But it is also the case, separately, that the Russian military, again, for political reasons, has to be impatient. The Russians are trying to have a quick war. Whereas the Ukrainians, they're going to last as long as they need to because defeat means death for them. They will fight until the end. 
right? They're never going to give up. Even if the Russians had taken over Ukraine, there would be this massive, I mean, unless they were shocked sufficiently, which is what those first three days are trying to do. But even if the Russians took over a large swath of Ukraine, right, you'd have this ongoing resistance for years and years and years. Because for the Ukrainians, including in particular the Ukrainian military, defeat means literal death. And especially now that the Ukrainians have discovered this, discovered like the atrocities in Bucha and the atrocities in Lyman and the atrocities around Kharkiv, the torture chambers, what they do to, you know, what the Russians do to civilians, the murder, the rape, you know, the just beatings, the looting, right? The Ukrainians are angry and their morale is incredibly high, right? There is nothing at this point that is going to get them to lie down their weapons. These guys are ready to die intelligently. And so what does that morale mean? It means that the Ukrainians will hold and follow orders even till death versus breaking. And so what does that mean? Well, it means that, for example, and this is the terrible arithmetic of war, as Churchill would call it, sometimes you need a unit to stay behind to cover another unit's, you know, other units retreat. Maybe more 90% of your guys are getting out, 10% of them are staying behind to slow down the pursuers. They're probably going to be killed, right? And they know it. And they are okay with it because they are fighting for their home, they're fighting for their people, and they're being reminded all the time what horrifying atrocities the Russians are not only capable of, but just seem to be regularly doing as part and parcel of their war making. And they know it, and so they have this incredibly high morale and willingness to intelligent risk or lose their lives in order to achieve success. They will go deep behind enemy lines. They will put themselves in disadvantageous positions in order to put their fellows in advantageous positions in order to win because their hatred of the enemy, well-earned, is so deep and their love of their country, you know, their, their nationalist fervor is so high that they are willing to sacrifice themselves for the whole in the way that Russians are not. Because the Russians are fighting a war fun, fun for a few of them, they're fighting a war for fun and, and aggrandizement and egotism, whereas the Ukrainians are fighting for the lives of their loved ones and their fellows and themselves. That is our fourth point, that the Ukrainians have a very, very good reason to be there. Their morale is very high, their cohesion is very strong, and they're willing to do what it takes. So, you know, Ukrainian soldiers 24-7 maximizing themselves for war, whereas Russian soldiers don't want to be there. They are drunk. They're drunk and they're looting stuff to be more drunk because they don't particularly want to be there. They don't understand why they're there because there's no good reason to be there. And so that morale difference is so critical in, again, meaning that Ukrainian advances are disciplined and intelligent. Ukrainian retreats are disciplined and intelligent. The Ukrainians are able to create awesome opportunities for victory by putting troops at risk. Whereas the Russians, the Russian command knows that essentially like it's the commissar problem. Like, I don't know if anyone, if any of you guys play this like tabletop board game called Warhammer 40K, but like the Imperial Guard is modeled off the Soviet army and you have commissars whose job it is to shoot people who retreat. And this is, is based on the Soviet style of military where the human beings in the military are pawns and they are not valuable. They're not meant to think, they're just cogs in the machine. And these commissars are there to 
so that you are more afraid of the commissar than you are of the enemy. And so it's always fun having these commissars because it's kind of ridiculous in this game because it's ridiculous in a Soviet style of military. And because morale is so low, you've got this commissar way of keeping Russian troops together, but it means that you can't do anything creative with them. They're not going to take initiative. They're not going to think. They're not going to be clever. They're certainly not going to expose themselves, at least not for long. And part of what's happening here, because of this Soviet style of like, okay, you all have to go now. Why? Because we need a lot of you to go. Why? Because we can't be clever. Why? Because you guys are untrained and don't want to be here. So we send a bunch of you at once to try to overwhelm the enemy. Like, this is where all these factors are compounding. For example, in Bakhmut, right? They keep sending wave attacks at Bakhmut. Why? Because they have to take Bakhmut. Why? Because they're politically motivated to take territory and show that they can have victories rather than try to defeat the Ukrainian army slowly and methodically because they're worried about the political ramifications of a long war. And so you're sending these guys in a wave. The Ukrainians know they're coming because you've been telegraphing the whole time that you're just going to keep trying to take Bakhmut. They get chewed to pieces and because the morale is low, they break and run. And so you've had these failed assaults dozens and dozens of times in the same place. It is complete insanity. And it is that way because this military is inflexible. You cannot do intelligent things. You cannot take initiative. And you don't have troops that you can rely on. So you just send them in a big group to go do a bunch of stuff. Again, this is a little bit different in the North right now because the Ellen, you can put some elite troops in some places. The Luhansk People's Republic is, they know that they're going to die if they lose because they're, you know, they're traitors to Ukraine. But the average Russian soldier is frankly drunk and dumb and the average Ukrainian soldier and unmotivated. Right. And the average Ukrainian soldier is motivated and spending every moment that they can becoming a better soldier. Obviously, they also have a lot of Western training, but there's no particular reason that Western like that Western military has to be smarter than the Russian military. The Russian military was once thought to be the second most powerful in the world. Right now, it's the second most powerful in Ukraine. And that Soviet style of running a military of just having tons and tons and tons of people and trying to overwhelm the enemy with mass of artillery, mass of humans, mass of bullets, it's faltering, in particular when you've got folks who don't want to be there, right? And again, it was not the worst gamble in the world, as long as you don't mind losing and pulling out quickly. It's not the worst gamble in the world to try to do the shock and awe thing, launch, you know, at the beginning of this, February 24th, launch a ton of missiles, launch a bunch of airstrikes, try to knock out everything, Try to drive in there and just, you know, and have it done and over before you got started. But the Russians, I keep trying to call them the Soviets, the Russians are lazy. And they're lazy because they're impatient. And this is the worst part for them right now, is they are not willing to admit what's not working. Because once you admit what's not working, you have to take this big step back and regroup. So it looks like you're actually losing progress. It's actually a big problem in startups, as it turns out, that I've learned the hard way, is that when you admit that something's not working, that's when you see the lack of progress. That's when you see the failure. That's when you see the graph turn the wrong way. It's when you see the momentum stop. But the thing is, not admitting that something's not working doesn't keep it from being true. It's just you're not willing, because of the political pressure, you aren't, that lack of willingness to admit that something's not working, it means you're going to hold on to what's not working far, far, far longer than you should. And it's an absolute catastrophe by the time you finally do admit it, 
right? So we saw this when Russia was trying to just race in with tanks and some airborne troops. Didn't work, but they kept trying. This also compounds with the Soviet style, but one, the Soviet style of running a military, and two, the fear that everyone has of not doing what Putin and his cronies want right? These compounding issues are coming to play again. But we saw it with the initial, they kept sending in unsupported tanks over and over and over, thinking that this time it will work. The Ukrainians didn't run out of javelin ammo. And so that failed. And then they're like, great, we're going to send this super long convoy into outside of Kiev. But they didn't think about the tip of the spear being sufficiently well supported to be able to move that convoy up. They didn't think about the weather because again, they were impatient. And then once it was there, here's where the, the admitting defeat problem comes in. Once it was there, the Russians should have quickly said, oh boy, this isn't working. Get the heck out and do something else. But they wanted to, once, but that would need admitting defeat and having to take a step back and go back to square one and you'd have egg on your face. And so they kept it there and that convoy just kept taking artillery, sitting there doing nothing. People were freezing to death. People were abandoning their stuff. And therefore, the situation when they finally admitted it was time to go home was way, 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 way worse than it could have been. The same thing is happening right now in the Donbass. Same thing is happening with trying to hold on to Kursan. This unwillingness to admit what's not working. At this point, the Russians, I think all they can do is admit that the war is not working. Like, that's all they can do at this point. They have, they have exhausted their military so much through tactically stupid, insane decisions for nearly eight months now. And so their army's exhausted. Really, all they can do is just admit defeat and go home. They're not going to do that. Right. And so this bigger unwillingness to admit what's to not admit what's failing is why they're sending 300,000 conscripts to the front line, totally untrained, super don't want to be there. And by the way, this is going to compound with all the other issues we talked about. Right. When the morale of certain units is even lower. Well, now you're in a whole lot of trouble because imagine you've got these, you know, you've got these conscripts playing defense, part of a trench. Well, they're going to surrender as soon as they can, right? If they're their own unit, that unit is going to surrender. If they're sprinkled into a whole bunch of other units, they're going to slow and bog those units down and limit the effectiveness of all of those units. So you get to choose between some of your units are just going to like break and run or surrender immediately, or all of your units now have graded decision-making capability. Choose one. My prediction here is that sending these conscripts to the front line you know, I think a lot of people say, well, it's maybe going to make things a little bit better at some point for the Russians, but it's going to take a long time. Other people say it's going to have essentially no effect other than it's going to use a little bit more Ukrainian ammo. I actually think sending these conscripts to the front line makes the situation for the Russians worse because you have a larger proportion of people who super don't want to be there, who have no training, who are scared out of their minds, right? And I guess, I'm sure you guys have seen the videos, have been told that they need to buy tampons because they don't have enough medical equipment if they take a bullet hole to shove a tampon in there, literally, right? That's the plan for these guys. They have to supply their own tampons. And guess what? The stores are out of tampons. And so you have these guys who just could not want to be there less. Like the Russians are literally conscripting people as punishment for trying to flee the country because they don't want to be conscripted. These are the people who least want to be on the front lines. And the Russians are putting them out there because again, this is that compounding mindset. Maybe if we just throw even more people at it, we can turn the tide. It's insane. And that inflexibility comes down to the last factor. The last factor is you let one guy run it. And that one guy is Putin. The Russians 
decided to, for whatever weird set of reasons, give Putin more and more and more and more power. Maybe he made them feel cool. Maybe he made them feel strong. Maybe he made them feel, I don't know. But they gave him more and more and more power. And now the guy is unchallengeable. And there's actually, there's this interesting problem of loyalty and trust that leads to the dictator trap. But is there anyone in Putin's circle? Because the guy is paranoid, right? He's in the KGB. Is there anyone in Putin's circle that wants to get rid of him? Who knows? But if not, all the people who are like, God, this is insane. What are they going to do? Because if you speak up, you get thrown out a window. Sorry, you fall out a window. And so because you put this one guy in charge, he can just say, yeah, we're going to invade Ukraine. It's going to be great. Right. And remember at the beginning, he didn't even tell most of these guys like mid-level commanders like, wait, we're doing what? Right. They were told they were just there on a training exercise or there to intimidate Ukraine. And all of a sudden it's like, go in. The Russians didn't mute me right there and they started going in, but they had no idea. And so this takes the Soviet style military problem, cranks it up on super steroids because you literally have one guy who is quite clearly off his rocker, right? He's quite clearly out of touch with the reality because he's only being told what he wants to hear that he's the one telling people, hey, you have to take Severodonetsk. Take it now. Why haven't you taken it? Why haven't you taken it yet? Probably pounding the table, screaming at people. Now, maybe not. I don't know if that's his way but continually firing people because they're not achieving the objectives. He tells them they absolutely have to achieve no matter what. And the Ukrainians are like, great, bring it on. What's your next goal? Oh, it's to take this city or defend that town at all costs, right? The Russians were like, we're going to defend Lyman at all costs. Great, cool, defend Lyman at all costs. Now we know exactly what you're doing and we're going to know what you're doing until we win the battle for Lyman because you have zero flexibility to draw out. As you can see, you have these six factors, right, which I'll go over in a sec as a summary, that all compound with each other to lead to a situation where this war builds momentum for Ukraine and saps momentum from Russia, both at the same time. And as long as that's going to continue, which because of the guy up top really seems like it's going to, it is going to continue, as long as that's going to continue, the situation is going to get better and better and better for Ukraine, who is being patient, taking its time, using positional warfare, doing targeted strikes. They can do this as long as they need to. The West will keep supplying them. So they're going to keep doing targeted strikes against Russian logistics depots, command and control facilities, ammunition depots, and they're going to attack when it's convenient, when it's clear, when they've got intelligence that it's a good idea, not when they don't. Right? So you and I can get impatient looking at the maps being like, come on, guys, let's go. The Ukrainians won't do it. They can take their time. If it's got to be four years of war, it's got to be four years of war. They just need to win. They need to defeat the Russian army. And so the Ukrainians will continue to play a patient game where every day they're doing the smart thing and the Russians are doing the dumb thing, right? Which is continue to try to take Bakhmut, dig trenches that are really obvious because you're not allowed to fall back another inch. And as long as that continues to be the case, this fighting will grind down the Russians and it will build up the Ukrainians. And maybe I didn't get into that enough because not only are the Ukrainians being supplied and trained by the West, which is building them up, and they're capturing Russian supplies, which is super building them up, and their morale is strengthening as they win, which is building them up, right? And the thing is, like, Ukrainian morale went up when they were slowly retreating because they're like, we're taking out a lot of Russians as we do this, and it's going up as they build offensives, right? Whereas Russian morale decreased with each victory because they got chewed to pieces and, of course, decreases with each defeat because they're fleeing. So the Ukrainians are gaining in material, money, morale, 
training, and experience, right? The Ukrainian army was not particularly experienced compared to the Russians. Ukrainians are gaining experience. They're becoming veterans. Russian veterans are being destroyed in these meat grinders. So every advantage the Russians had is being flipped and will continue to be flipped as long as war goes on until, who knows, maybe the Ukrainians end up marching to Moscow. Not actually going to happen, but a man can dream. To summarize, why is the momentum situation so asymmetric? One, the politics for Russia means that they're impatient, they need to show results quickly, which means they run right into meat grinders and they're unwilling to admit defeat or admit that something isn't working. Two, the politics of needing to take territory, and that's what the Russians are fighting for, and the territory they want to take is super obvious, where the Ukrainians are fighting to defeat the enemy, which is not obvious, which means that the Russians are in a meat grinder. Three, similarly, the politics of no retreat as a doctrine, meaning that when you do retreat, it's a route. Four, morale, and morale discipline, and esprit de corps among Russians was already low, but every time, you know, they don't know why they're there. And also every time they lose, their morale gets worse. And every time they win, their morale gets worse because of the meat grinder. Five, separately, Russian atrocities leading to a stiffening of the Ukrainian spirit and a willingness to fight to the end. Six, Soviet, Soviet style of, hey, you're untrained and dumb and drunk, and we're just throwing you at the front lines in mass versus a NATO style of military which one thing I didn't mention in this episode is NATO has been training the Ukrainians since 2014, and the Ukrainian style of warfare has become much more NATO. And the bonus on top of this Soviet style of warfare is Putin himself as a major contributor to this. And you see how all of these work together and compound. So as long as this war continues, the Russians are going to continue to get ground to pulp and the Ukrainians are going to continue to transform into one of the more powerful militaries in Europe, if not the most powerful land-based military in Europe by the end of all of this. The only thing the Russians can do at this point to save any kind of, it's not face at this point, but save any kind of military capability and pride is to retreat and go home and give up. The game is over. Just We're just going to see how long it takes for the Russians to figure that out and I'd admit it and do the smart thing. So that, my friends, was episode, holy moly, 11 on the Ukraine war. I'm sure we'll have more. I have a few thoughts on other stuff I want to do. I want to start talking about education with you guys. So that will come once I'm back in November with my podcast mic. I will be back to podcasting a little more often. Thank you guys for putting up with the bad audio. I hope you're enjoying this. It's fun. It's definitely fun making these, even abroad. And until we speak again, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. This is Eric signing off. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 